Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. What exactly is a combat athlete? What does it take to be one? What are the keys to minimizing and recovering from injuries sustained in these potentially punishing sports? With us today to talk about all this are Kirsten Schmidt, a former amateur and professional combat athlete and current instructor who sustained significant injuries along the way, and Jessica Probst, who both participates in combat sports and treats combat athletes as a physical therapist. They'll distinguish between the different types of combat sports, describe the joys and dangers of participation, and offer advice to anyone who might be considering a combat sport. Here's our conversation. So, Kirsten, you're a former amateur and professional uh, mixed martial arts fighter, a current amateur Muay Thai fighter, and a current Krav Maga instructor. It's it's my understanding that all of those sports fall under the definition of what's come to be known as quote-unquote combat athlete. So can you start by talking a little bit to our listeners about what the term combat athlete means and what those three things, mixed martial arts or MMA, Muay Thai, and Krav Maga are and sort of what they involve? Sure, absolutely. So combat athlete is really an athlete that's involved in sports that are more physical in nature where you're taking punishment or damage to the body via either punches, kicks, knees, elbows, or via submission. The mixed martial arts is really a great way to wrap all of the arts into one term instead of saying a jiu-jitsu, a muay thai, a boxing, a kickboxer, a judo practitioner. It's really, you know, the term we've come to use to wrap all that into one thing so if there's a better understanding to people around us what we do. Of course, people always specialize in one of those areas. The one that I came up through was Krav Maga. Um, That's actually how I met Jessica. I got into Krav Maga and some guys from the gym did some Muay Thai fights or actually MMA fights, and I really just wanted to get involved. And so that really led to my progression. Krav Maga relies heavily, it's a stand-up, street-fighting, self-defense-based concept, assuming multiple attackers. So you want to stay standing, it's your best defense, and so it leans heavily on the Muay Thai aspects of punches, kicks, knees, elbows, and so that's really how I evolved more into a Muay Thai fighter. And how are those things different from mixed martial arts then? So I would say Krav Maga is significantly different from mixed martial arts in that it's a self-defense art with the intent of you walking away and your attacker not. So there's things involved like eye gouges, throat strikes. Those are things you definitely can't do in mixed martial arts that the rules now outlaw. At one point those were allowed, but we definitely outlaw those now. And so it's more self-defense based with the focus being you walking away as safely as possible. Muay Thai or mixed martial arts is really intended to be, you know, a competition for the practitioner with the best knowledge and the best strategy and game plan. Muay Thai is really more just, it's called the art, often referred to as the art of eight limbs. And so those eight limbs being your legs where you're kicking, your knees where you throw knees, your punches, 
and then your elbows. All four of those are seen as just equal weapons. My predilection actually, I became a close range fighter, which in Muay Thai, that's the clinch. A lot of people that are familiar with jiu-jitsu or judo are more familiar, are aware of the clinch or wrestling. So I became a close range fighter where I was really comfortable throwing elbows and knees. And th that's really part of my Krav Maga influence. You know, in Krav Maga, you think about what's going to do the most damage to your attacker with the least damage to you. And when you think about it, your hand is very breakable. I mean, you always hear about boxer fractures, but your elbow is not as breakable. It's a much more solid surface to make contact with. Same with your knees. People have seen the gifts of the really awful breaks to Anderson Silva's leg. It's always a risk. And so knees, you're not going to have that risk. And that was what I became very familiar with in Muay Thai. So everything you're talking about sounds sounds incredibly intense, but your personal story is an interesting one. You weren't that much into sports until after you'd involved, been involved in a serious car accident and, and you'd gone through a lot of rehab, and then uh, later on you indulged in some seriously unhealthy habits while you were in college. So so can you kind of walk us through all that? Talk about your evolution from a childhood uh, bookworm or at least somebody who wasn't that involved in sports through your serious injury and rehabilitation and crazy things like heavy soft drink consumption and smoke in college and, and eventually into running as your first real step toward fitness after all that. Can you kind of walk us through all that? I definitely was a bookworm growing up. My current height is 5'8", and I've probably been this height since I was about nine years old. So I was a very awkward child growing up. And unlike some people who grow into their height really well, I didn't grow into my height very well. I was a skinny, awkward kid and just really never found my place in sports. I really found my place in books. I went to college on an academic scholarship, but as you mentioned, I uh, actually had a really serious car accident toward the end of my freshman year of high school, and a piece of the motor mount from the car I was driving came back through and shattered my kneecap and split my knee wide open. All told, I had two surgeries that summer or I had two surgeries in the hospital, and then I went back uh, two more times for a, a wound debridement and then a manipulation because of so much scar tissue that summer, so four surgeries that summer. Two years later, I actually had to have the screws removed, and then probably about seven or eight years later, I had a meniscus repair. And honestly, that really didn't help my interest in getting involved in sports. You know, I, now I had this really awful scar and I had very uneven muscle tone across my legs due to having to reconstruct my knee. They actually had to stretch my quad down and reattach it. So my muscles were very uneven and all of that, you know, along with being an awkward teenager, really just kept me from getting into sports. I did compete as horse activities when I was in high school, but that was about it. And a lot of that led to, you know, my inactivity level led to really bad habits in college. I, like many teens, picked up smoking as a, right at the end of high school, unfortunately. And that was something I continued through college. And I probably overcommitted myself a lot. So my, my college days were fueled with many liters of Mountain Dew and lots of cigarettes to get me through. But towards the end of my college career, my grandmother was actually diagnosed with emphysema, and she just quit smoking immediately. And that was actually a really huge shock for me, that this woman who smoked for 50, 60 years just quit smoking instantly. And I really felt stupid for smoking, and so I decided I was quit. And having been so low activity level, I wanted to make smoking the most miserable thing I was going to do to my body, so I decided to pick up running, which was something I had actually hated before. 
I was definitely not in shape, and so I just started jogging around my apartment complex, and then when I couldn't jog anymore, I'd start walking. And I worked up, and I worked up more and more until I was actually running around my apartment complex three times, and that was about 30 minutes. And it really became a great bonding experience for my dog and I. I had an Alaskan Malamute at the time. And he was the best running partner. He actually would look at me like I was running too slow most days. And about four years, maybe four and a half years after moving to D.C., I got divorced. And my husband or my ex-husband took the dog, our Malamute. So I was still a runner, but I was without my running partner. And I would always run before work. And so I found myself in a really uncomfortable situation of you know, running in the morning before work, 4, 4.35, it's generally dark out, and I was all by myself. And I live in a safe neighborhood, but I just didn't know anything. I wouldn't know what to do, how to protect myself. And my sister was living here at the time. We saw an ad in the city paper for two classes for 20 bucks to go take Krav Maga. And I'd always heard of it as great self-defense. And so we joined up, signed the class together, and uh, I was actually about two or three weeks out from a half marathon, I thought I was in great shape and the class kicked my butt. I just got my butt handed to me and I was honestly hooked from that moment. Something about my personality is it's tough, I want to do it. And so I finished the half marathon and then I started going to these Krav Maga classes on a regular basis. And I, I really just loved them. It was just something that I had never done before. And it was such a great outlet. You know, I was going through my divorce. I was really struggling with all the emotions of that tough job at the time and so I could go to this thing at the end of my day and just punch and kick and yell and scream and I let it all go and it became a really great outlet I continued my running not as much as I had before but I had a stress fracture from running and the thing I missed the most was the Krav and so I really decided at that point I was going to transition almost completely to Krav and running on occasionally I decided to become an instructor. That was really a undertaking for me. For those that knew me, I couldn't even jump rope when I started. That's a fundamental footwork thing for most athletes to have. And so I really had a lot of work to put in. I, I'd do practice jump roping. I'd go to the track and do footwork drills. And I definitely got better. I improved my overall athleticism a lot. And, and then, as I had mentioned earlier, some guys from the gym were doing an MMA fight. I just thought they just handled it terribly. I'm like, these guys, they're doing this terribly. I could do this so much better. And so it was really after that, at that point that I decided to transition from Krav into competing in mixed martial arts. How terribly? I mean, what, what did you already know at that point about what they were doing wrong? All the guys had a hard time making weight. They were all getting injured. I knew several of them. That, you know, they also worked in the restaurant industry, so they, you know, maybe weren't getting enough sleep. They were just fundamental things I thought I could improve upon at the basics and make it a little bit easier on myself to do this. As you say, you were involved in uh, in MMA fighting as a, uh, on an amateur basis, but uh, ultimately you um, actually did have a professional fight, but just one. So can, can you talk about what happened there? So I had my first amateur fight. I lost, and there's nothing like a good loss to motivate you for the next ones. And so after that, I had a couple more amateur fights, all of them very decisive, and every next decisive fight made it even harder to get the next fight. So um, I think it was actually before I had an injury to a tendon in my pinky, and I, I was out for a little bit from one fight, and my coaches were just really struggling to get me a fight and really struggling to get me a fight, and so it was that point that we decided that I would go pro to at least incentivize people for a fight if they were going to get paid. 
and I did one more fight. This really is a tune-up fight because if I had waited from my fight of injury to my pro debut, it would have been a full year. So it was actually a title fight. The plan was do the five-minute rounds, get used to that length of time, and then have the pro fight. Uh, unfortunately for planning of logistics, I finished the fight in about a minute and a half, and so I did never experience a five-minute round prior to going into this pro fight. So you were kind of too good for your own good. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was too good for my own good. The thing about women's mixed martial arts is it's still a developing sport, and you're going to struggle to find opponents, you know, and we're, we're spanning weight classes, so you're going to struggle to find multiple opponents at a weight class in a certain area. And I would say the D.C. area isn't something, you know, everyone here is type A and very focused on work. They're not really focused on getting punched in the face in the evening after work. <laughs> and so it really, it's not, I would say it's not an area that lends itself to you know, having a depth of women fighters. So I was good, but, you know, there's also something to be said for just the pool is also small, and it's getting much better. A quick break to tell you about Choose PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national public awareness campaign. America is currently in the grips of an opioid epidemic. In some situations, dosed appropriately, prescription opioids are an appropriate part of medical treatment. But opioids only mask the sensation of pain, and opioid risks include depression, overdose, addiction, and withdrawal. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging healthcare providers to reduce the use of opioids in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy for treating pain. Learn how a physical therapist can help you at moveforwardpt.com slash choosept. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. So what you're saying is perhaps going into that one professional bout, you didn't have the level of experience in some ways that you might have that might have helped you a little bit more. Can you talk about what happened in that one professional bout then? The fight was scheduled for June, and I, I think we had my opponent set up from maybe January or early February, and then about five or six weeks out from the fight, she backed out. That had actually been a theme throughout my career. I had many canceled fights or opponents back out. My coach called me with a new opponent. She was a fighter who had had, I believe it was seven seven or eight fights at that point. And, you know, you, you hear that and you're like, crap, How I, I'm a O&O fighter de- making my professional de- debut. I really was hoping for someone with more experience, you know, similar experience. And, um, you know, you have to trust in your coaches, and I really did, and do. And I I talked to all my coaches, and all of them really believed that I had what it took to beat her. And when it came down to it, I definitely did. I would definitely say her ring experience was definitely a factor for that for her. You know, she was more comfortable in there. She'd been through it more times. There's just, you know, a slightly different experience going from an amateur fight to a pro fight and all the processes you have to go through. And she had a boxing background, so she definitely had better head movement than I did. And so she definitely rocked me from the very beginning of the fight. And I can distinctly remember in the fight knowing that I was getting rocked and she was getting the best of me, but that I did not come that day to lose. And I made a decision to turn it around. And I clenched up. I went back to what I knew, which is the clench, and I started working on the things that I really knew. And I went back to throwing knees and elbows and landed really some significant strikes. 
despite having been rocked really good. And we went through two rounds. I felt great, actually. I mean, I definitely remember getting her first punch and thought, oh, that's going to leave a, work, a mark for work on Monday. But um, at the end of the second round, starting the third round, she tried to stand up and didn't answer the bell. So the athletic commission waved it off. And I had a concussion from that fight. And I would say that part of it was that I didn't address it correctly. I had symptoms probably leading up to the fight of the concussion. I wanted that fight so badly that I didn't address it correctly, and I really wasn't willing to miss the fight. And so hindsight, I, you know, I really wish I would have addressed it and taken care of it when at the time. And, and how did that manifest itself then? Leading up to the fight, I was definitely having some headaches. You know, and part of it is just you're training a lot, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're not sleeping well because you're putting your body through so much. So some of those headaches I kind of grew to expect, you know, just dehydration and exhaustion. After the fight, I was having significant headaches. I actually had trouble driving because I had trouble with the lights. I was really struggling with depth perception, and I was having the trouble remembering things. You know, fortunately, I have a great day job, and I was able to get, like, good, really good medical care. Jessica actually got me involved with a craniosacral physical therapist, which really helped. And I got him. I can't think of the name of the type of physical therapy, but basically I had to retrain my eyes to connect with my brain and my hands. Part of the concussion process is your, everything kind of gets out of sync, so you have to retrain it all to work together. So things mm-hmm. that were second nature to me before really became a struggle. You know, I had to walk tossing a ball to myself, and that was really, like, unbelievably hard. So a lot of that was extremely frustrating. And, of course, my frustration with modern medicine is give you drugs and put you on drugs for the rest of your life. And I really was planning on kids, and I didn't want to be on drugs for the rest of my life. I don't feel like that's a way to live your life at all. So it was actually really challenging to work through doctors, to find doctors that were willing to find me an end result. Ultimately, I ended up at Hopkins and, you know, got connected with a great doctor, and everything was great from there. But it's definitely a process, and part of it is, you know, I also had to make the decision that for my long-term health that I had to give up fighting. And for, you know, the better part of six, seven, eight years, competing had been my everything. You know, I'd broken up with boyfriends that ate spaghetti in front of me when I was doing a weight cut. So giving up something that my entire life revolved around was a really hard decision, and I I struggled with it a lot. And it was really hard. I definitely would say that I fortunate to have great doctors that helped guide me through it, and great friends. I mean, there's nothing better than great friends when you're making a life decision to help you through that. Now, that prompted you to actually change your professional path. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now and how involved in combat sports you are today? My day job is actually a project manager. It allowed me to be very methodical and diligent about all of my training and planning, which coaches always love, you know, someone that sticks to the plan and follows the process. So my coaches love me for that, and that's definitely where my focus is now for my day job. My personal love is really teed into mixed martial arts with nutrition and nutrition coaching. And so I I still coach at our gym. I still assist a lot of our fighters. But really where I am able to have the greatest impact is assisting people with their weight cuts. And, And not just the weight cut, but it's all the nutrition 
leading up to it because it's not just what you eat one day or two days before a fight. It's, you know, the six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks leading up to it to ensure you have proper nutrition that you're not getting hurt throughout it. So before we segue into talking with Jessica about her own experiences as both a combat athlete herself and as a physical therapist who treats combat athletes, can you talk a little bit about the various injuries you sustained from the, from the time of your car accident really through your MMA years and, and specifically the ways in which physical therapy and PTs helped you overcome those injuries and setbacks and, and sort of get back in the game? And also can you talk about sort of as you alluded to earlier when and why uh, Jessica came into your life? Jessica probably remembers more of my injuries than I do because they were pretty numerous. And, you know, some of it is just because I was a, I'll call it a late athlete, you know. So my body hadn't been conditioned and experienced to a lot of the rigors of training that, you know, a lot of athletes would go through in maybe middle school, high school, and college. Those were things I was all cramming into at once. So part of what Jess and I really started initially working on was my knee because still, you know, into my 20s have significant muscle discrepancy. And she was really essential in breaking up the scar tissue, making it more mobile. Where it got cut open was right across the nerve, so I still have weird nerve issues. And so she assisted with a lot of that just to get me to, you know, a base level where I was kind of maybe like everybody else, I guess, where I could start really building upon that. And so, you know, as I'm cramming, getting, you know, to a fitness level and learning a sport with having compounded things. You know, I'd been to physical therapy after my car accident and then after the meniscus repair. And nothing against them, but Jess is a very manual physical therapist. And so she really had a different approach to any of the physical therapy I'd been in before. I'd go in and they'd give me a few exercises and put me on the e-stim machine. And that's good. That's good for getting you back. But I needed to move more than that. And so one of the things I was experiencing is when we do a block in Krav Maga from an overhead attack, you make a right angle with your arm and reach out and above your head. And I would experience a block and my whole arm would go numb. And I kind of thought I was dying. You know, you think, oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack? What's going on with my arm? So I saw Jess and it turns out it was just a simple, you know, rib manipulation. I wouldn't call it simple. It was actually really painful. If Jess is known for anything, it's for her really vicious fingers that she really gets in there. <laughs> but I think maybe we had two sessions and I, all my pain was gone. And so I was kind of hooked on Jess at that point and, you know, really deferred to her from a lot of experiences. If I was experiencing anything, just the way we kick, I had numerous kind of turf toe issues. And she actually turned me on to a great doctor who does prolo and PRP, which was essential in getting me back to fighting right away. But her relationship with this doctor who, you know, just didn't want to do surgery or pump me full of drugs was essential in actually getting me functioning again. So she would definitely, you know, work on my toes. I had a lot of, she called them stuck ankles. She would probably have a better term for that. You know, I would have just ankles that got kind of locked up probably from, you know, bad running, rolling my ankles while running, and then just never treating it. You know, we sprain our ankles all the time just being, you know, tripping but not even realizing it. You know, there's long-term effects to that that we sometimes aren't even aware of. And so she was able to work on a lot of my alignment and postural things. I definitely had a lot of first rib issues, you know, and that's an effect of how, you know, the stance we take and, you know, how we protect ourselves. That first rib can easily get bound up. Can't remember the exact muscle 
on my back. Jess would probably remember, but I was actually having trouble, some, you know, pain like under my lower shoulder. And, you know, as she looked through it, she actually discovered that my muscle wasn't firing at all. So she actually took time out of her day to accompany me to the doctor. She met me at the doctor when I went to go see Dr. Ibrahim. And um, sure enough, the muscle was not firing. It had atrophied somewhat. And he, you know, did a prolo injection into it. And I'm sorry, can you explain what that is, a prolo injection? It's proliferation therapy. It's a regenerative procedure that you inject into different areas. It causes inflammation. And every doctor kind of mixes the components differently, but it, it causes inflammation. So, for example, if you do it in a meniscus, you can, in a meniscus tear, you can get the area to heal and you don't have to do surgery. I had it with my supraspinatus tendon. I had a pretty significant tear in my supraspinatus tendon, and it allowed me, you know, to get back, or actually not even take time off from training through the coordination with Jess and, and her physical therapy. A quick break to tell you about Find a PT the American Physical Therapy Association's national database of physical therapists. PTs are movement experts who treat people of all ages and abilities, helping them to improve and maintain function and quality of life. Don't wait until you have an injury to see a PT. Contact one today and learn how you can improve your fitness and prevent health problems before they start. You can contact a physical therapist near you, no physician referral required, by going to moveforwardpt.com. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. So I want to bring in Jess now. And parenthetically, Jess, you might want to consider using I'm hooked on Jess in your marketing materials. I mean, <laughs> that quote, that quote from, from Kristen there. As I mentioned earlier, you're, you're a PT who treats combat athletes, and you also are a combat athlete yourself. So first of all, I want to ask you, which came first? You know, they came together. I was really lucky. I fell in love with martial arts 22 years ago, just as I started PT school. So what's your personal history with combat athleticism, if you will, and then what particularly interests you about treating combat athletes as a PT as well? Well, my first martial art love was Don Zanryu Jiu-Jitsu, which is a style of Jiu-Jitsu that has a lot of throws and strikes as well as grappling. And I love learning about the human body. It was great. I got to learn about it in the classroom, and I also got to learn about it with my training partners. So when we did different locks, it was helpful to learn you know, the details of the anatomy of the elbow, not only through pictures, but also through, you know, applying locks with my training partners. So uh, I studied jiu-jitsu for four years and earned an advanced brown belt. And uh, then I moved to continue my studies, and I started taking Aikido. Um, and with Aikido, I was focusing more on timing and inertia. And also I was interested in taking a little less impact uh, through my body as I had sustained a number of injuries uh, with the jiu-jitsu that I had done. Just so, so people will know, just briefly, can you talk a little bit about what Aikido involves and how that's different from some of the other types of combat athlete issues we've been talking about? Aikido is, is generally speaking, considered a softer martial art. It involves a lot of throws, and it involves a lot of using uh, an opponent's inertia against them. So instead of blocking a punch, we pivot out of the way, and then there's, for example, different wrist techniques, which then throws your opponent. So Aikido is not a, a technical combat martial art, but it can be very, very useful in terms of fine-tuning timing, footwork, um, and it's especially useful when there's smaller people which are going up against larger people because, um, you know, as, as a five-foot-five woman, if I'm going up against a, you know, six-foot-some-odd uh, man, 
it is for me just to hold my ground and, and to stand and go head to head is not necessarily going to be the best matchup, uh, which was the most advantageous for me. It's interesting the juxtaposition that you're a physical therapist and you're also a combat athlete. Can you talk about the ways in which the two things influence one another, how being a combat athlete makes you better as a physical therapist treating combat athletes, and conversely, what being a physical therapist and knowing what physical therapist knows helps you prevent and recover from injuries as a combat athlete? Sure, absolutely. So I got a lot more firsthand experience as I transitioned into Krav Maga um, and now also train Muay Thai. And it's very, very useful to have familiarity and first-hand knowledge. So sometimes the techniques can contribute to an actual injury itself, and sometimes it can contribute to, like, a training wear and tear over a period of time. So, uh, for example, like if you take a basic classic roundhouse kick, there's a lot going on to deliver an effective kick, right? The, the mm-hmm. leg the fighter is standing on needs to pivot through the ball of their foot, needs to be powered by the muscles on the hip, which help to turn the leg out. And the leg which is kicking needs to turn over from the hip and the pelvic region at the right time with the right orientation to be able to deliver an effective strike to the target. Also, the low back and the pelvis needs to be able to stabilize and control the leg and the torso to be able to drive power, you know. So when a fighter who delivers roundhouse kicks comes in with knee pain, we need to get to the bottom of what's causing it. You know, often they plant with a stance leg, and they pivot through their knee, and this causes irritation to their meniscus or other structures in their knee. But the question that I'm really interested in most as both a physical therapist and a martial artist is, why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Are the muscles that turn the leg out from the hip weak? Are the hips tight and restricting the needed movement? Are the core muscles and the pelvic core muscles not giving enough stability to support it? Is the low back or mid back restricted from limiting the movement so they can't get the movement that they need or the correct muscles for firing, what's happening with the sequence. I mean, I can go on and on. It's a lot to look at. And that's incredibly rewarding for me, both as a physical therapist and as a martial artist myself. So wearing your physical therapist hat for a second, what's unique about the athleticism needed to be a successful and healthy combat athlete? I mean, is it more flexibility than strength that's needed? Is it a combination of both? Does, or does it depend uh, to a large degree on the specific martial art? In general, fighters and martial artists need both excellent core strength and hip motion, back flexibility, and we need both the strength as well as the flexibility. But it is a little bit specific um, from one sport to another. For upper body strikers, rather, it's really important that the mid-back is moving beautifully. A lot of times people end up with problems in terms of both less effective punches as well as tearing their rotator cuffs and other tendons in their shoulders when their back is in a, stuck in a forward slouched position. So a mid-back moving well and a, a very, very well-balanced core strength uh, is really important. For jiu-jitsu and all kicking arts, we need really excellent hip motion. And also we need to have, for everyone, I mean, really significant amount of, of core strength as well as core strength with, with movement and rotation to be able to power punches, to power kicks, to be able to effectively ground fight. I'm interested. You you said earlier that you're what about five feet tall? Is that correct? Five foot five. Yeah. Oh, five foot five. Okay, so you're five a little taller than that. I, I'm just wondering, like physically, as when when people see you, would they have any idea that you're a you're a combat athlete just from looking at you? No, I have a big smile on my face the vast majority of the time. I look very unassuming. 
And then when I when I started new martial arts and Muay Thai is relatively new to me, I, I uh, there's a fantastic school that I go to with my with my son who does Taekwondo there. And as I started off, some of the people make assumptions about me based on the way that I look, and then they're very surprised when I start uh, hitting the pads and engaging with them. <laughs> so that might actually be an, an advantage for you. <laughs> yes. So hopefully I haven't needed to use things in a in a, in a self defensive uh, setting since college, and I hope that I will never have to. I'm very glad to have some uh, tools in my toolbox. Jess, do you treat only uh, injured combat athletes, or, or do you see them in a in a preventative way as well? Well, we do both. Athletes will often come in to me with a certain problem. They've you know injured uh, their knee or their shoulder or their back is hurting them. And then we take a look fairly, um, not just at the specific body part, but we also take a look at what's going on throughout the entire system. Because we need, because again, everything is connected uh, at such a deep level to really take care of a problem and really maximize the chances of it never returning, we need to look at someone really holistically. And often we're doing that, we'll find out, you know, hey, so you know, part of the problem when your shoulder is bothering you is because your low back isn't moving when you're punching. So you're putting too much weight through your arms, putting too much stress and pressure through, through the ribs and overusing the muscles in an ineffective way. So then we can get on to, to working uh, and, and helping the back be able to move and function and fire well so power can come from where it should, from the hips. So that ends up turning into much more of a performance enhancement quality as well as a treatment quality. Once people uh, especially have started to see me, my goal is that they know their bodies really well and that they know right off the bat when there is when they're starting to get stiff, when something is just becoming a problem before it's an injury, that they can identify what is it moving the way that it should and have a bunch of exercises and tools in their toolbox so they can pull them out and complete some exercises to stop the problem from starting before it does or to to further improve their performance. And then if they're not able to work out successfully, then they know to come right in, get a tune-up. Often just takes a session to address these things before they turn into major issues and keep them functioning at their highest form. Now, Kirsten, I want to jump back in and ask you a question. From your point of view as an athlete, what's the benefit of working with a physical therapist? Is that something that you would recommend to young and upcoming combat athletes? I can't recommend it enough to have a good physical therapist that you can work with. Like Jeff said, some of it is just proactive stuff, you know, and I, I you know, I, I initially went to just work on some muscle balance, and that was just to get me to a base level, and there's things you don't even know you're doing that are causing issues, and so someone, especially like Jess, with, you know, combat sports knowledge and understanding of how the movements work, really can pinpoint the things you're doing, you know, with a really deep knowledge of the human body that maybe your coach doesn't have. I mean, he or she gets how to throw a punch and an elbow and the mechanics of it, but they're maybe not seeing where you're, you have muscles that are not firing or you have a muscle imbalance. And those are things where a physical therapist just even proactively is essential so that when you do have an issue, you can just, they can address very quickly. Jess, let me close with you. What are a couple of key things that you would tell young athletes and their parents, perhaps, about how to best to keep healthy and safe for a given combat athlete sport? Some of the key things, which are very consistent, are make sure that your hips are moving really well, really good hip flexibility and strength, especially at the glute muscles, which are the muscles in the outer part of the hip that turn your legs out to the side and bring them out behind you into the side. Those are crucial areas. It's also really important, I would encourage, uh, for all people to work on the motion in their upper back 
is an area that especially with all types of combat athletes can be overlooked and is really important to address. And of course, if something starts hurting, even a little bit, if you don't wait to get it checked out by a qualified physical therapist or another healthcare provider. The uh, other thing is that sometimes when your instructor will give you a direction and you understand intellectually what it is the instructor is having you, wants to have you do, but you just can't make your body do it, sometimes that's a thing which takes time. And other times there are things which are going on in your system that are making it hard or impossible for you to follow that instruction. So seeing a therapist um, which is able to really take a, a very thorough look at what's going on and what you're having trouble with and also who has the manual skills to be able to make uh, corrections as needed, which is especially important throughout the spine, then can be incredibly helpful. And uh, the other piece of that is really about having the entire body be able to work together and looking at things from a full body perspective. So when people have a knee problem, for example, and they come in to see a therapist, I think if the therapist only looks at their knee, then they're really doing the patient a disservice. We need to look much more at what's the underlying causes of these problems. Just one last question, and I want each of you to answer in turn, in, in whatever order you'd like. But it's just interesting to me as a layman and perhaps to a lot of our listeners as, as, as people who are not involved in combat sports, the idea that you would kind of purposely put yourself through the, the kind of physical punishment that's involved in these sports. Can you both talk a, a little bit about sort of what you get out of it and why participating in these sports and, and in your case, Jess, why helping uh, athletes to be able to participate in these sports uh, is so important to you? For me, there's a great deal of enjoyment, first of all. There's enjoyment and connection with other people. I enjoy the feelings of the productivity of learning things which could be used defensively. And I love helping people do that. A lot of times people will go to their doctors and their doctor says, I can't believe you're doing this. What do you expect? Of course you're going to get hurt. The answer is you need to stop doing that. And that doesn't sit well with me at all. I view my role as people should have the right to do what they want to do with their bodies. And I love helping empower people to be able to as safely as possible engage in the activities that they really enjoy. So if people want to, I mean, heaven, I, you could not pay me enough money to get into an octagon with Kirsten. I have seen <laughs> her multiple times in live action. I don't blame any of her would-be opponents for, for watching tape of her and backing out because that was what was happening. I mean, she, more power to her. Um, and, and I'm enormously impressed. I've always been enormously impressed. And I, it's my great pleasure to be able to help her and people like her be ready to go on game day and help put together whatever needs a little bit of help afterwards. I really enjoy that. So, Kirsten, how about you? I just really enjoy the strategy of it. You know, and this is something that a lot of people overlook. It's not just going in there and punching somebody's face. You know, I watch my videos, and sometimes I think that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> And but it's it's a strategy and, and it's being able to think through everything you have to do and look for opportunities when you're being tested as much as you can. Is it kind of like a chess game in a sense? It's absolutely chess, and a lot of people associate you know the strategy of it with chess, and you have you do have to set things up. It's not just going in there. Well, I will say that there are definitely fights where people just go in there and wing punches and pray for the best, but the fights that you do well in and you go in with their intention of doing well, you have a plan and you execute to that. 
and it doesn't always work. You know, my coaches and I had a totally different plan when I started my fight, and but we had a backup plan. When that didn't work, I had to default to the backup plan. And so it's, it's really just that, you know, testing. And I guess that's what really appeals to, my, to me is just testing myself and my abilities. You know, and that's relayed to so many other facets of my life. Despite what goes on at work or even with my new daughter, it's really not going to get much worse than being in a cage with someone, like, trying to knock me out. <laughs> well, and, and it occurs to me, uh, the way you describe it, it's something you really have to kind of be a student in a way. It kind of gets back to that bookworm that you were when you were a kid, in a sense. Absolutely. And and maybe that's just my approach because that's my background. You know, I can definitely say that it's your life's events that lead you up to this that will influence how you look at it. You know, I've talked to many other fighters from all facets of life and education levels, and we really all have that same idea is that you, you're looking for opportunities and you're looking to exploit somebody's weakness for your advantage. Well, Kirsten Schmidt and Jessica Props, thank you so much for speaking with us today on Move Forward Radio. We really have appreciated it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at moveforwardpt.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by moveforwardpt.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at moveforwardpt.com.